This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. And today I'm joined by Katie Balls and Chris Ward, Director at Hanbury Strategy and former Deputy Chief of Staff to Keir Starmer. Now, it's been a crazy kind of 12 hours in the Commons, um, which ended in chaos. Um, Now, Katie, listeners last heard us talk about um, the vote going down yesterday uh, in yesterday afternoon's podcast. But what's happened since then? Because you were at the Commons until quite late, weren't you? I was, and I think we can hear a clip now, just just to give the, for those who, who did not sit in the press gallery last night. A lucky few. <laughs> exactly, just to hear what you were missing. That some of the members who are shouting the loudest... So as you say, Cindy, yesterday we were speaking after Lindsay Hall had made the controversial decision to defy advice from the House of Commons clerk and to change precedent on how amendments are picked for an opposition day debate, which meant that the Labour amendment calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire would be voted on as well as the SNP motion as well as the government amendment. And previously what would have happened is because there was a government amendment, the Labour amendment would not have made the cut. Now, that appeared to, despite the criticism of Hoyle, almost de-dramatise the day because you no longer had a situation whereby Labour MPs were likely to rebel, some front benches potentially resign. And the general sense was Hoyle had got Keir Starmer off the hook. Mm. But it didn't end there. Instead, and I think, you know, of all the years I have been in the House of Commons, I have not seen anything like what happened last really, night. Really? Not even during Brexit? No. It, it was angrier than the even the highest Brexit dramas. Even the Liz Truss fracking vote, do you remember that one? Um, Where was, MPs were manhandled? Was, this was when, you know, uh, uh, accusations of manhandling, whip shouting, people alleging to quit and Liz Truss resigning the next day. That was still, I think that was like a meditation session compared to last night. Because effectively, you had both the SNP and the Conservatives aggrieved at the fact this had been picked. It did not help matters that Lindsay Hoyle was not there for the later debate or the vote. And instead it was Rosie Winterton, Deputy Speaker, in place. And you got to a point where the leader of the House, Penny Mordaunt, said the government would not be taking part in the vote, criticising the Speaker, saying, we are withdrawing from this. And then they tried to do some quite clever tactics on the Tory sides uh, using a convention whereby they were just trying to waste time. Just like Labour were trying to delay time so that they could get the speaker to make the decision earlier in the day. I think these are quite classic common tactics. But yeah, trying to delay, so basically trying to make it so if you got to 7pm under the rules, you wouldn't then have time to call any votes on the opposition day debate. That session would be over. And therefore, the Tories called for a vote on holding the session in private away from the media, which means we would have all been turfed out of the press gallery. It was never really going to pass. It was just a way to 
push it to seven. They succeeded in pushing it to just after seven. Yet still, Rosie Winterton called the motion and she did it on the nod, which means because no one objected to it, there wasn't a division. This then led to complete fury <laughs> because Tory MP said they hadn't heard her say it. Said she, she said it she said very quietly. <laughs> the SNP said they hadn't heard it and therefore they hadn't had a chance to object. And then more generally, there was so many points of orders. It was almost, it felt like a very almost an angry scene in a pub at one point with all these MPs across, but standing up, shouting point of order, trying to get heard. And you had both the SNP and the Tories ultimately voicing various uh, ways in which they felt aggrieved by the situation. And I think for the SNP, their point was, you know, we get free opposition day motions a year and we haven't been able to vote on our own motion. Mm. So that was uh, a point there. And on the Tory side, questioning Rosie Winterton's decision on why it was the case that this had gone through despite the 7pm cutoff. And I think what was quite tricky in terms of the optics is Lindsay Hall at one point did have to return because Stephen Flynn, the mm. SNP leader, demanded it. And he did apologise. He actually looked almost on the verge of tears when he was apologising. He said, you know, he tried to do what he could to protect MP's safety and he apologised for how it turned out but then he left and I think by having Lindsay Hoyle who of course was a Labour MP before he had to become neutral for the role of Speaker and then Rosie Winston one of a couple of deputies but she is Labour I don't think Rosie Winston was politically motivated but the optics of having you know Labour and then Labour in, men, in many ways while having these two groups just made I think it even worse in terms of the feeling in the house and it does mean I think there are now questions about whether Lindsay Hoyle can stay in the role. I think it was probably more likely than not that he does. Mm. But there is a feeling he definitely lost control of the Commons last night and the SNP would like him gone. And there are some Conservatives who would like him gone. And there's an early day motion. It's only got about 30 signatures on it, but it's a slightly different than a confidence vote because the point is... <laughs> If you have MPs in different parties who don't believe in the Speaker, it's pretty uncomfortable. Right. And Chris, as Katie says, um, Lindsay Hoyle apologised and said he regretted making that decision. And there's been reporting since that Labour pressured uh, Lindsay Hoyle through various means to select their amendment. What do you make of those reports? I don't know the the ins and outs of what happened there. It's, It's pretty usual for... Uh, for the Labour Party to and for all parties to speak to the Speaker before, so I, I don't know about that. That'll that'll come out in the wash today. But it did remind me quite a lot of the Brexit days. Actually, it did feel like I was back in back in that when we were doing. You know, you had sort of late night sittings and you know MPs in the lobby getting terribly excited by procedural amendments. You had the Labour Party trying to find sort of unity through a lot of words in a very long amendment, and you probably had the public looking on, completely confused and <laughs> bewildered at what was going on. Really, so. I thought it did have elements of Brexit to it again, which was slightly triggering, having spent all those years doing it. But uh, as you say, it ended up in a, a place where the speaker's in a very difficult position today. Uh, I don't know how that's going to play out, but I think when you've lost the confidence of at least one of the three major parties, it's a, a very dangerous place for a speaker to be. Mm. Katie, you know, you mentioned that early day motion. So how, how does it play out for Lindsay Hoyle from this point onwards? Because it does seem like not just one party. I mean, it seems like that both the SNP and the Tories are furious at Lindsay Hoyle. So how secure is his position? So we've got business questions this morning, which I think will give a flavour of things. You have Labour trying to effectively rally the troops by um, saying it would be good if there was a strong Labour presence at business questions, because I think they think they have to show there is support for Lindsay Hoyle. The funny thing is, 
I don't think Labour being supportive of Lindsay Hoyle massively helps the situation no. <laughs> because the whole problem is he looks too supportive of Labour. So, so in a way, having a situation in the Commons Chamber where once again the Tory and SNP are criticising Lindsay Hoyle and Labour is saying what a great speaker he is almost proves the point the other side are trying to make. So, so I think you've got Lindsay Hoyle today meeting with various figures. I think the best defence you can make of Lindsay Hoyle is he was in a difficult position and he did have, and it seems, Keir Starmer, mm. uh, along with others, some talk of Sue Gray also kicking around, increasingly be hearing her name, but making the case that MPs' safety was being jeopardised by these divisive votes and there were all these you know, harassment and so forth. And... I think as Isabel makes a point on Coffee House this morning, if it had a different situation where a brick had gone through the window of a female Labour MP after the amendments had happened, lots of people might be saying, how dare Lindsay Hoyle not change outdated conventions in the Commons? But I think what the debate showed last night is actually the situation is really complicated and, mm. and trying to help one group only means you make it harder for other groups and therefore perhaps the safest thing is to stick with the precedent because otherwise it almost looks like you're picking winners and losers mm. and you heard it from Paul Bristow the Conservative MP last night like he was sacked um, from government for calling for a ceasefire he has a heavily Muslim community in his constituency and he was saying you know I've been left with a situation where like I'm not able to register my vote he wanted to vote for the SNP motion he said how am I supposed to tell my constituents mm how I have voted you had the SNP saying that too and instead all you have is a Labour motion which obviously helps some Labour MPs say how they voted and I think that is what has happened so I think for Lindsay Hoyle to regain the confidence of the house um he probably needs another mere culpa he did it a bit last night but he wasn't clear enough if he regretted his decision it seemed you know you could take as he regretted the fallout and he needs obviously work I think to get the SNP and some Tory MPs back behind him and Chris, I mean, while this, I think the accurate term is bin fire, happens in the House of Commons, it does seem like Labour has kind of avoided a big potential rebellion and things are working out um, for Keir Starmer, at least, you know, in the kind of loss minimising way. Chris, having worked with him for so many years, you know, is there any insight you could give us to how he is as a politician, how he is as a leader, what goes through his head through a week like this? So I realise that's three very big questions. <laughs> Pick your fighters. That's, that's a big question to unpack. What goes through his head on weeks like this? I mean, Starmer hates the parliamentary chicanery of yesterday and the sort of the ins and outs of it. He hates doing policy by amendment. He thinks that's indicative of all the worst things of, of how parliament works and that it ends up looking bad both to both the watching world and to the public. So he, he will hate weeks like this and he won't enjoy where he's got to look in terms of Labour avoiding a, a big split. I mean, that's that's a good thing. It, it gets you through the day, but it doesn't really take you to, to understand a bit about where Stan has got to on, on Gaza and how he thinks more broadly. All, all I'd say on that is I'd try and think about why Stan has taken the position he has for the last few months, which is to, to not call for an immediate ceasefire, but essentially to say that Israel has a right to defend itself, a right to pursue militarily, gaining hostages as long as it sticks within international law. Stan, remember, is an international human rights lawyer, spent 20 years doing it. He literally tried cases in the ICJ, so he, he knows that better than, than anyone. But he's, his instinctive feeling is that it wasn't the right thing to call for an immediate, to ceasefire immediately, which is where some in his party are, it's where the SNP are. He has a much more nuanced, nuanced position on this. He doesn't think about this in a normal way as a Labour leader does. Now that gets him into difficulty sometimes because it means he doesn't necessarily see around corners of where big votes are coming and big pressure points are coming. 
And it actually goes to how he, he piecemeal develops policy. It's taken several months for Labour to get to the place they got to last night. But yeah, it's it's probably a week that he will he will hope won't be repeated again and that he'll think Labour's ended in a better position than they started. And Chris, if we're trying to understand, I suppose, what Starmer is like when it comes to matters beyond Parliament. I mean, it's really interesting some of the excerpts in this latest book that you've contributed to. I think there's one particularly which has been in the news already, which is um, probably Starmer's lowest point after that (laughs) by-election. The one where we think of the big um, inflatable Boris Johnson and it's seen as the Boris Johnson high point and the Keir Starmer low point. Can you um, tell listeners what happened around then? Uh, Going going to the high points of of my time here with Keir, yeah, when we were were losing by-elections. Look, it was, to be honest, looking back at it, it looks like a different different political landscape and a different time, really. Starmer was at his lowest point. Uh, We'd lost that by-election. And it was really, that was the moment, I think, really, where Starmer kicks into the second phase of his leadership, where he realises he hasn't hasn't changed the party enough in the first year. And he has to, he realises he has to, to speed up what he's trying to do in the party now. We've done some stuff in the first year, which I won't go into too, in too much detail, but he had taken some big decisions, suspending Corbyn, changing the general secretary, lots of big things. But he hadn't really got Labour, the campaign structure and the party back on its footing. And I think he really moves on from there. But just to understand Starmer a little bit about how he goes, there's this perception that Starmer is, by definition, a ruthless politician. And he he's ruthless at all points. I've seen that word kicked around a lot. I think Tom uses it in his book. He has a ruthless streak to him, without a shadow of a doubt. And when he takes a decision, he drives it through ruthlessly. Now, you could say after Hartlepool, he makes a lot of changes in the party. He does various other things after big seminal moments. The Beergate thing is another one where he takes big decisions. But actually, and you saw it last night with with how he's developed a bit with Gaza and how this 28 billion has gone, he tends to make big decisions and stick to them, but they take quite a long time to be made. So you could argue the first year... He was pursuing broadly a unity strategy with some significant changes when they arose, Corbyn, Long Bailey, General Secretary, various other things in Scotland. But actually, the general bit was about unity and bringing the party together. He then realises he has to change it. And there were big, and there Brexit is another one as well. He takes quite a long time to get to a position, but when he sticks to it, he then, he then goes through. Yeah, and I suppose the devil's advocate would then say... What do you think that means for Kirstarmer taking power? Because we look at the green spending decision, we look at what happened with the candidate last week, and I think there is there's a feeling that Lee's blips are not going to stop his path to number ten. Most likely, the polling looks pretty confident. But I think probably the the bigger criticism is: does it mean you know in government you have to make decisions pretty quickly, and <laughs> um, you don't have the luxury of opposition of slowly getting there? Yeah, I mean the the, the first thing I say is I think he he is as well equipped to be prime minister and to take those decisions as anyone who's been leader of the opposition. Remember, Starmer ran the CPS. You know, he ran a, a large organisation taking day-to-day, life-and-death big decisions. He did them quickly and he has experience of doing it. If you look at what he's done with the Labour Party, he has taken very big decisions and he is strategically, both, by the way, to become leader, and that, which Tom covers in his book, and then as leader, he has taken big decisions and decisively and I think as Prime Minister, he he comes in with a way that there's only two other people, I think, alive who've won from opposition now in our, our lifetime, which is Blair and Cameron. Neither of them had that experience coming in. True it is that he will have to step up and, you know, have a, a sort of new team and a, a new uh, invigorated way of, of delivering that in government. But I think he's very, his background actually lends very well to that. What he does really need, though, I think is that definitional piece in the next six to 12 months. So six months before the election and then the six months after 
really defining what Starmerism is and how he's going to govern. And I think when he has that clear in his mind, you'll see, I think, a more decisive, consistent Starmerism in government. Chris and Katie, thanks very much for joining Coffee House Shots. And thank you very much for listening at home.